On the evening of September 11, 2001, hours after the terrorist attacks that left nearly 3,000 people dead, Republican and Democratic senators stood on the steps of the Capitol to participate together in a moment of silence. When that moment of silence ended, the senators, who days before had engaged in plenty of partisan politics, spontaneously began to sing, God Bless America. The COVID-19 pandemic should, like those terrorist attacks, be the kind of common enemy that brings Americans together. Instead, this virus seems to be tearing us apart. From mainstream news to social media, our feeds are filled with stories of Americans taking sides. Today, we are going to try to figure out what went wrong. Welcome to I Wrote This Podcast, the show in which we noodle our way through timely and interesting issues. I'm your host, Bob Neese. Thanks for joining in. So, what happened? Why has this pandemic driven us further apart rather than closer together? First, no matter what you do, and no matter what happens, you will be arming your critics with solid evidence that you made the wrong decision. Second, no matter what you do, and no matter what happens, prudent planning on your part, when properly executed, will look indistinguishable from wasteful incompetence. And here's the strange and surprising thing, all of this is due to two persistent and powerful psychological illusions. Illusion number one, the results always appear to favor the naysayers. Policymakers face a tough task in thinking about how to handle the COVID-19 virus. Generally, they can either try to keep deaths to a minimum but risk economic harm, or they can try to protect the economy while risking the lives of people who might otherwise be saved. But as we are about to learn, no matter what the policymaker does, pre-existing disagreements are likely to widen. Let's suppose that after convening experts, reviewing the evidence, and considering the options, Governor Smith decides to aggressively lock down the people of her state. She believes that the lives saved by this policy are worth the economic harms that will surely follow. What happens? Well, some people lose their jobs. Yes, lives are saved, but we can't really tell which ones they are. In contrast, we can see, in concrete terms, the damage to the economy that was the known cost of pursuing the selected strategy. In other words, when making a choice between the lesser of two evils, the downside of whatever choice you make is the manifestation of outcomes that argue against your decision. A few states away, Governor Jones went through the same process, convening experts, reviewing the evidence, and considering the options. But he comes to a different conclusion. Jones decides to keep the economy running as best as possible, knowing that people will probably die as a result. And what happens? Well, some people die. Yes, jobs are saved, but we can't really tell which ones they are. Just as was the case with Smith, we can point to specific examples of people who were harmed by the Jones policy, but this time it's the lives lost that loom large. This is the nature of decision-making when facing a lesser of two evils situation. Trade-offs must be made, but no matter which way you decide to go, the outcomes that argue against the choice you made will be more salient and thus appear to favor your critics. This is a mighty headwind for policymakers, but there's a second illusion that leaders managing any disaster response must face, and it makes prudent decision-making look like you don't know what you're doing. This brings us to illusion number two, good decisions look like incompetence. One of the tension points in our household is how much food to prepare for guests. Gina's goal is that we prepare just enough food to make our guests happy. She correctly believes that any more than that is wasteful. But in the culture in which I was raised, it's far worse to have a bit less food than your guests need than it is to have too much. It's okay to overdo it a bit. This is an example of an asymmetric penalty function. That's just a fancy way of saying that the pain of being wrong in one direction is much greater than that of being wrong in the other. 
disaster planners often face an asymmetric penalty function. With this coronavirus, policymakers watched in horror what had happened in Italy. Hospitals were overflowing with COVID-19 patients. The sick and dying were crammed into hallways and makeshift wards. A shortage of ventilators meant that doctors had to choose which patients to try to save and which to let pass away. When it came to preparing to deal with the virus in the United States, policymakers faced an asymmetric penalty function. It was far worse to be short an ICU bed, short a ventilator, short a nurse or a physician, short a package of personal protective equipment than to have some to spare. That's just a reflection of competent preparedness and planning. But what makes sense at the time of decision-making, in other words, that it's better to over-engineer than to come up short, might not look so good in the rearview mirror. People who are inclined to be skeptical about government competence look at the results and see waste instead of prudent planning. It's very likely that there has been this kind of overshooting when it comes to managing the pandemic, that that may very well be the result of an asymmetric penalty function and good decision-making. Had policymakers planned for the most likely outcome, there would have been a substantial chance that they would come up short and that people would unnecessarily die. Instead, they planned for something worse than what was likely to happen. Let's see how these two illusions might cause Americans who are leaning to either the left or the right to lean even further, despite reasonable and competent decision-making by elected officials. Imagine that you're an American who sees themselves as being politically slightly right of center. You understand the importance of protecting public health, but are also concerned about the economic health of your family, your neighbors, and your community. You generally trust experts, but have concerns about the efficiency of government. Now suppose that your elected official decides to aggressively pursue a strategy of slowing down the spread of the virus via stringent lockdowns. It's not necessarily the choice you would have made, but at least you understand the reasoning. As part of this overall approach, your governor also calls for a pause on elective surgeries and builds a temporary surge hospital. All of this is done to minimize the chance that the region's hospitals won't be overrun by the spread of the virus. As weeks go by, infections peak and then slowly decline. But two other things happen. First, people you know lose their jobs. They're understandably worried that it may be a long time before they go back to work and many of them are worried about losing their homes. Yes, it's true that deaths from the virus are a bit lower than the experts projected, but it's impossible to know who would have died without the lockdown, so it all seems a little, well, hypothetical. Second, the hospitals weren't overwhelmed. That temporary surge hospital turned out not to be needed, and from the day the lockdowns were started, there were always enough hospital beds. In fact, some hospital staff were furloughed because there wasn't enough work to keep them busy. The pause on elective surgeries saw to that. As you reflect, you begin to get more and more angry. Those niggling concerns that you had when the lockdowns were announced have become more pronounced. The economic costs were too great, and all those empty hospital beds bolster your prior beliefs about how inefficient the government can be. Of course, nothing has really changed. The near-term policy to prioritize saving lives over protecting the economy always meant that some jobs would be lost even though we can't say specifically whose lives were saved. And what looks like waste is just a concrete example of the adage, better safe than sorry. A similar but mirror image story holds true if the governor had prioritized the economy over public health. The jobs saved would have been statistical, but the deaths from the epidemic concrete. Folks who favored a more proactive approach to the government's response to the pandemic would have had plenty of evidence to harden their position, too. So, what's the takeaway here? The bottom line is that when it comes to the pandemic, two psychological illusions are likely to drive us further apart instead of bringing us together. And that raises the question of whether we can escape these kinds of division. 
policymakers are still struggling with how to best move forward while balancing competing interests in a complex, dynamic, and uncertain environment. The stakes remain high, and we shouldn't waste time or energy on unnecessary divisions. When it comes to this pandemic, it's critical that each of us understand that it's not just differences in values or differing opinions that are driving us apart. It's also a pair of psychological illusions that strengthen and increase these pre-existing differences, no matter how small those differences are. Just as with optical illusions, knowing that these two psychological illusions exist doesn't necessarily make them go away. They reflect our wiring, and that's something that's hard to overcome. Nonetheless, understanding that these illusions exist makes it more likely that we can recognize them when they're at work. They also may help us understand why people with whom we disagree may feel as strongly as they do. Above all, we should try to help each other remember that most of the time we're much more likely to agree than disagree. No one really wants to trash the economy, and no one really wants to see people die unnecessarily. The challenge is how to achieve the best balance. That will take all of us engaging in a fact-based, explicit discussion that rises above these psychological illusions. Thanks for taking the time to listen. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. That really helps get the show noticed. Also, be sure to subscribe to I Wrote This Podcast wherever you download your podcasts. If you have a comment or a question about anything you've heard today, or if you have a suggestion for a future topic, please send us a note at I Wrote This Podcast, all one word, at thatradioshow.com. That email address one more time is I Wrote This Podcast, all one word, at thatradioshow.com. Oh, and one more thing, if this podcast sounds a little funny, that's because it's also an experiment. All of the audio for my voice was generated using AI technology. Hopefully the show will sound different and better as the tech improves and as I improve at using it. I'm Bob Neese, hoping you have an amazing day. We'll get together again soon.